0: hope and future of our nation, but do we actually organize our public programs to make this hope a reality? Millions of youth in America are disconnected from the mainstream of opportunity. They are out of school, out of work, and out of options. In the roaring economy of the past several years, these challenges were big enough, but with the spread of COVID-19, the problems of disconnected youth have gotten worse. Even for those with high school and college diplomas, the world is a very uncertain place right now. For those without credentials and networks, the situation is even more dire. These youth do not have a village of family, friends, and community like that enjoyed by middle and upper-income youth, and chances are increasing they will fall through the cracks into permanent adult disconnection. In this episode, I'm joined by Ann Kim, the author of Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. Ann is a writer, lawyer, recovering think tanker, and a contributing editor at the Washington Monthly. In this episode, We lay out the economic and financial landscape facing today's young people and speculate on the effects COVID-19 will have for this vulnerable population. We also try to shed some light on their struggles and innovative strategies that can help them as they prepare to enter the ranks of the American workforce. Anne Kim, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working.
1: Thank you for having me, Brad.
0: You have written a very interesting new book, Abandoned America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. I'd like you to start out just by answering that open-ended question that we ask all authors is, what's your book about and why did you write it?
1: So this book is about, a even before the current pandemic, current crisis, a huge population of young people who had been falling behind and had really been off the radar of this national conversation we've been having about you know, inequality, who has access to opportunity, and the future economic prosperity of our country. We're talking about four and a half million young people between the ages of 16 and 24, 11 and a half percent of all young people who are both out of school and out of work, disconnected from the mainstream of economic opportunity. And this is before the pandemic hit. This is you know during the time when it seems like a long time ago, but when our economy was actually in relatively good shape. And the book is about you know why. So many young people are cut off from economic opportunity and what we can do about it. And I think, you know, these concerns become even more of a concern in the recovery. Young people are going to be the, we can talk about this a little bit later, but, you know, young people are going to bear the brunt in a lot of ways of the economic fallout from uh, this crisis.
0: Let's talk about what the landscape looked like before the crisis hit and explore a few of the big themes that you've talked about in the book in terms of access to opportunity, criminal justice, and the urban-rural split, those kinds of ideas, which I found very, very compelling in terms of sort of building the case for where this problem comes from and why we should be concerned about it.
1: The title of the book is Abandoned. And the reason that the book has that title is because I do think that young people have been abandoned by public policy in a lot of ways. And the book outlines a few ways in which that happens. There's almost a a deliberate severing of connection between young people and access to opportunity when you're talking about the criminal justice system and the foster care system. But but there's also a different kind of abandonment when young people are in parts of the country where they are cut off from jobs and educational opportunities. I call those opportunity deserts. And that happens in rural areas. In fact, the rate of disconnection is significantly higher in many parts of rural America, simply because there isn't access to the structure of opportunity. You know, the factories have gone away or higher education, institutions of higher education are literally geographically too distant for young people to access. So those three main avenues of disconnection are what I explore in the book.
0: I wanted to explore that. That urban rural split just a little bit. Because it's always struck me that, you know, when we think about problems of youth, I think that you say that when those words are spoken by someone, I think the picture that comes to mind, at least it comes to my mind, is like, okay, we're talking about kids growing up in typically urban neighborhoods, lots of problems, lots of dysfunction. Those are the youth. But we don't really think about kids in rural areas as being part of the disconnected cohort, right? Theoretically, at least, the picture in our head is, oh, we've got small, kind of tight-knit communities, there's a safety net there, a social safety net in terms of relationships and family and so on that may not be as available to kids in an, in an urban area. And so that's one thing that, that comes to mind. The second thing that comes to mind is just, at the same time, I've always felt like there's a kind of despair in rural poverty that is different qualitatively from urban poverty, because at least in an urban area, you've got a concentration of people, institutions, organizations, there's more going on, and therefore, there are potentially more pathways to escape that circumstance. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think those are two really very good points. Part of what I wanted to do with this book is explore some of the mythology around, you know, who youth are, who are disconnected. And one of the divides that you point out is exactly right. I mean, you do have a stereotype in a lot of people's minds about so-called urban youth. And I think part of that also carries with it stereotypes about the role of choice and personal responsibility. And what I really wanted to do with this book was show that structure really matters. The structure of opportunity really matters. Young people don't have a choice. If they're in a criminal justice system that is taking opportunities, literally taking away opportunities from them, or in the foster care system, same thing. And when it comes to rural youth, it matters even more. If you are in an isolated part of the country where the jobs have gone away, have literally gone away, and you're 17 years old, how do you have access to a job that's going to get you into the middle class? Or how do you have access to higher education if the nearest community college or the nearest college is literally an hour's drive. So in parts of the country, I talk about, for example, an area in the upper western northern area of Pennsylvania where the disconnection rate is literally 75%. Now we're talking about relatively few numbers of people, but when three out of four young people, 16 to 24, are not in school, not working, you are talking about that recipe for despair that you are talking about. And you're also absolutely right that, you know, in urban areas, you can at least see the opportunities around you and policymakers can build the infrastructure, connect people with jobs. That's just not possible in the areas we're talking about in rural America.
0: That section of Pennsylvania that you were just talking about, sort of north of Pittsburgh and south of Erie, that's empty territory, really. People don't recognize that Pennsylvania is the most rural state east of the Mississippi River. Yeah. There's a great emptiness there. It's also one of the most alienated parts of the country. When you think about what we saw in 2016, in terms of people turning out in large numbers to vote for a populist candidate for president, those are the areas that we're talking about. That level of kind of social alienation is so entrenched in that part of the country. And again, It's kind of cuts against our stereotype. That's rural America, that's apple pie and baseball country, and yet it really shows all signs of despair that we would associate with other, we might associate with other parts of the country. So
1: yeah, that's that's exactly right. And these parts of the country were once thriving, right? You know, in Pennsylvania, the logging industry was really what kept that part of the state going for a very long period of time. I also visited a part of southwestern Virginia which is undergoing the same kinds of challenges. There, it was manufacturing and tobacco. And when tobacco went away, and when the manufacturing went away in the early 1990s, the jobs went with it. And there is that connection between work and community, right? When you have people who are working, people who are able to maintain their families, you that's when you also have strong churches, strong civic organizations. But when work disappears, the social fabric also begins to fray, and young people have fewer and fewer opportunities to build that social capital that's going to allow them to take that next chapter in
0: their lives. And those are the themes that our colleague Tim Kearney explored in his book, Alienated America. You know, like, there's a symbiotic relationship between economic vitality and community vitality, and you can't have one without the other. The question of which is the main driver is an interesting one, but it's almost like we can't do much about one until you do something about the other at the same time. That kind of goes to a question I wanted to ask you about, which is, I mean, it seems to me that one of the similarities between urban poverty and the rural poverty that you talk about in the book and the disconnection of youth in both types of communities is the family and what happens to families in communities where there is this vicious cycle of social and economic decline. I'm interested in what your thoughts are because I wrestle with this in my own work. I don't see how we rebuild social capital without shoring up the family. You know, families are the first educators for kids and the socializers for kids. And so I'm interested in just hearing you kind of reflect on that paradox that we face because it does feel to me like it's a both and. I'm interested in, in what you think about it.
1: It's a chicken and egg problem, right? I mean, as you point out, Without the families, you don't have the social capital. Without the social capital, it's, you, go, you go round and round. What comes first, work versus family, mm-hmm. family or work? And that also, I think, gets to the heart of some of the ideological and partisan differences about how you tackle the very roots of, of poverty. I agree with you that this is a problem of both and. You have to build civic institutions and the economic infrastructure at the same time. One of the themes I explore in in the book are the social connections that come with work. You know, when you think about one's own experiences as a young adult, making those initial connections with an internship or with that first mentor at your first job, and they connect you to someone else and you get introduced to these networks of opportunity, that is intertwined with work and connections that one's parents have at work and the interconnections between work The people you work with might be the same people you go to church with or the same people whom you see on the baseball field or, you know, at the grocery store. All of these interconnected social networks are so important. But I do think you have to have that foundational economic infrastructure as that first step. And I do think that social institutions tend to follow when people feel like they are contributing to their communities economically. Supporting their families economically. When people have that purpose, that work brings. I think that it's kind of the prime ingredient to building social capital. So, if I had to choose, I would say economic prosperity needs to come just a step ahead of rebuilding social and political and community capital.
0: Very, very interesting. I had an interview with a report from the Detroit News yesterday, and we were talking about Americans. I don't think typically talk about purpose in work, unless they're kind of like people like you and I who like live in the information economy and it's all ideas anyway. So, you know, it's not a big step to start thinking about it at a more abstract level, kind of like, why do I do what I do? I think what we're seeing in the economic shutdown that we're experiencing right now, I mean, part of the reason that people are getting antsy is not just that they're worried about their income. Everyone tends to load a lot of their self-value and their life purpose into the job that they do, and it comes in remarkable ways. I mean, last night on the on the PBS Newshour, there was a profile of a guy who picks up the trash. You know, that's his job. He's a you know sanitation worker, and he talked in enthusiastic terms how much he loved his job how grateful he is to have his work and how he derives a sense of purpose in serving the community in that way. That purpose issue, I think, is really underappreciated in terms of what people are experiencing right now. And when people are out in the streets complaining about the shutdown, I think that's part of what they're complaining about. But how do we talk about work with disconnected populations, disconnected youth? How do we engage that purpose question with them? Because we're so pragmatic. We're just like, just get a job. Everything will be fine. Just get a job. But it's really not true, I don't think.
1: That question has become even more difficult to answer, I think, now, especially when you have so many students who have lost their identity as students and maybe found that whatever they were studying for might be irrelevant in a post-pandemic world. The disconnection problem was severe even before this crisis. And now I think the disconnection problem is going to be magnified, however many fold, because say that you were, you know, majoring in hospitality services, or, you know, I was talking to a couple service providers who had, who had actually training programs with the restaurant, National Restaurant Foundation. Those training programs are now out the window. What are these students going to do? So this question of purpose is one that educators are really going to have to grapple with, I think. And it is one of the reasons why disconnection was happening before. You know, the young people mm. I talked to for this book would say, well, you know, what I was learning in high school wasn't relevant to me. And that's why they dropped out. So this question you raise of purpose is actually central to the question of whether someone is disconnected or not. Does a young person feel like their life is meaning? Do they feel like what they're learning has relevance to what they're going to do in the future? The gets to one of the solutions I highlight in the book. The school district that I profile near the border, near McAllen, Texas, one of the ways in which they kept students from dropping out was to bring in that question of relevance. They were getting college credit in high school through early college programs and dual enrollment. And that actually gave the students a reason to stay in school because they saw a pathway to earning money for their families, they saw a pathway to finishing a four-year degree within two years because they graduated with an associate's degree. Like having those medium-term and short-term goals for students that brought that question of relevance and purpose early on in their academic careers is what kept them connected. And again, also, if you have the opportunities around you, you know, a lot of people said, you know, you will be what you see. And if you don't see anything around you to shoot toward, If you're living in a part of the country where there's nothing to look toward, nothing to aspire to, then again, that purpose of connect, the purpose, you know, the reason for connection drops away. And when you're young, it's much easier to feel, you know, influenced by what you see in your environment than if you're a mature, you know, person who has had more experience and has extra reserves to draw on.
0: I completely agree. I want to push this issue just a little bit further, though, because when you talk about you know, students kind of looking at their education and saying, it's not relevant to me. What that says to me is actually, I don't see how this is going to get me a job, so I'm not going to pay attention to it. And I think that's actually part of the problem. There's a host of things that we all need to know and, and appreciate and develop within ourselves that make it possible to engage effectively in work that aren't related to technical knowledge that you might be formally taught in a classroom. I think one of the challenges, and I, I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about this, is that we kind of told people that doesn't matter. It was bad after the 2009 recession when we were sort of hammering the the anthropology majors, like you're unemployed because you chose the wrong field of study. What are you going to do with that now? I think it's going to be ten times worse after this crisis because the economy, the jobs are going to be so hard to come by. And there'll be even a higher premium on practical application of skill. But that doesn't get to the factor that you identified, which is young people are idealistic. They want a purpose in what they do, not just an outcome in terms of how much money they're going to make.
1: Yeah, I mean, higher education is in for a gigantic reckoning, as both of us know. Yeah, yeah they're experiencing that reckoning now in, in real time with varying degrees of success. And this central question of how do you, if the purpose of higher education is not just to impart technical knowledge and even contacts. you know, that's one of the reasons why the Ivy League schools are able to command a premium because the networks that you tap into, but the purpose of higher education is also to impart that sense of purpose to young people. What does that look like after the current crisis is over? That's a really good question that I don't think anyone has really answered yet. Or even asked, asked, yeah, or even asked, how do you even begin to answer that question? And unfortunately, I think young people are going to have to answer that question for themselves, and their parents are going to play an even bigger role, I think, in supporting young people to a later stage. For many more years. And that is, you know, one of the themes that's also in the book, too. This runway into young adulthood has really lengthened because of this need for parental support through a longer period, as we go through a longer period of education, as education becomes much more important. I can see that this adultal lessons period will be even longer because young people are going to need to rely on parents and support systems if they have them for an even longer period of time. And that, I think, is going to exacerbate the disconnection problem even worse for the subset of young people who do not have parents that they can rely on, you know, who are at the mercy of institutions like the criminal justice system or the foster care system, you know, or parents who mean well but just don't have the resources available to them. That divide between the haves and the have not is going to get even worse. Because the safety net has frayed so much, and the safety net's going to matter more.
0: I keep wondering that we're now in the realm of pure speculation as to you know the impact of the COVID crisis. I think it could go one of two ways. The emerging economic challenge is not just a jobs challenge; it's going to be a pressure on government challenge. You know what gets funded, what doesn't get funded. As you noted, you know these kids have largely been invisible to us. And they're not going to be more visible in the context of say 15 to 20 percent unemployment. You know, the top item on everyone's agenda is going to be let's get the economy restarted and we'll worry about everything else later on. So there's a very good chance that this kind of undermines, I think, support for investments in in programs that are, you know, targeted at an intricate, difficult challenge of disconnected youth. So that could lead to a deepening of the problem. I'm also wondering if the increased pressure and the realization that there's even less resources might have the effect of forcing individuals, families, communities to take their own role more seriously rather than looking to outside interventions to help bridge that gap. You know, that Stress does weird things. Sometimes it forces a higher degree of self-reliance, and then there are a lot of people who are just not going to have anything to fall back on. They're going to be an even worse situation. But do you see any see any upside? I guess every crisis has both challenges and opportunities in it. Do you see any upside?
1: I certainly hope that the second scenario that you you lay out will come to pass. I do worry though that. I think that the communities that already have relatively high stores of internal social capital already will be able to tap what they have. Places that have very low stocks of social capital to begin with will have nothing to draw on. And so this grassroots solutions will not be as successful, I think, in those kinds of communities. You'll end up seeing a little bit more dissolution of social cohesion in places like that. The opportunity I guess we can see here is that this connection could become a kind of almost a universal phenomenon for a lot of young yeah. people, regardless of income level. So will that draw more attention more broadly to the problem of youth unemployment slash disconnection? Perhaps, you know, for the time being. But I think you're also going to need a lot more imagination to figure out how to solve these problems. It gets down to things even as basic as what do we do with the Job core. You know, that is the federal government's largest, right. funded, you know, program. It's a residential program. How do you right. do that, <laughs> you know, in a world that's going to require social distancing? And there are a lot of, you know, constituencies that are very wedded to that model and to the infrastructure that has been built around these residential facilities where young people ostensibly get, you know, training and education. Yeah. That model's not going to work anymore. You know, who's going to come up with a new model? You know, and implement it in such a way that you can truly solve the problem this time around, rather than coming up with some stopgap that's not going to solve the deeper structural problems that have led to where we were before the crisis and are going to make things worse going forward.
0: Thank you for saying that. It reminded me of a bunch, of, a whole bunch of things I hadn't stopped to think about: job corps and the impact on. It'll be kind of like what's going to happen to colleges. You know, you just can't bring people together. Yeah that goes as much for job Corps as it does for anything else or for, you know, a college or university. That's a really good point. But I wonder about your other point about this now being a universal experience. I wrote a piece for the USA Today that was out a couple of weeks ago, talking about the pandemic class, you know, the the college graduates who are graduating into this job market, which is just a catastrophe. I sort of close out that article by saying these kids deserve our sympathy right now. They deserve our an extra measure of our attention, our compassion, our tolerance, because their whole lives, you know, they were speeding in one direction, and for most of them, not all, but overwhelming majority, the futures they had in their head are not immediately available to them. I'm hoping that we don't replay 2009 where we were beating up on the anthropology majors and mocking them for their higher ed choices. And I think it's really important, like you were saying, how do we make sure that that compassion that that we want to extend to the college graduates gets extended to everybody else as well, who are in even more dire circumstances than the kids who are graduating from college. Anyway, that may be if we can figure out sort of how to message this and how to keep it on the public's mind. We don't want to lose an entire generation of young people in the midst of this to that despair, I think is a really important insight.
1: I completely agree with that. And I I think the part of what has to happen is a politics that is a little bit more about you know, solidarity and coming together, I mean, what I think could prompt more resentment and division, you know, generationally, you know, by the pandemic class, as you put it, is if this kind of us versus them mentality continues, whether it's, you know, scarcity over resources or fights over scarcity over employment that's coming in the future. What I worry is that the pandemic class is going to feel robbed of the opportunities in such a way that, those feelings calcify into a bitterness and a resentment that's going to scar our ability to fix problems, you know, in the future. I think your call for compassion is exactly right. We've got to come up with a way to turn back some of the negativity that is being generated by really this fight over resources that we're having on so many levels.
0: There's also an opportunity in this. We are in the midst of redefining what meaningful work is right now because you've got, you know, people going up to cashiers in the grocery store and saying, thank you for your Uh service. You know, home health aides who are getting on the Metro and doing their jobs under really adverse circumstances are, you know, like, they're showing us what meaning and purpose looks like and they're sticking with their jobs. And so, one of the things I told the Detroit News reporter when we were chatting was, we need to give compassion to these kids, and they need to have flexibility to try things that they never imagined that they would try, you know, in terms of jobs. Because there are a lot of ways to contribute right now, even if it isn't in the field that you train for. And you might actually learn something out of those experiences, rather than bemoaning the fact that you can't get to that one thing that you thought you wanted to do. That's another potential upside to this is that there is kind of a almost like national service mentality opportunity here that could help us to honor different kinds of work rather than having just one model for success.
1: That's a really good point. And a related point, I was talking to the executive director of Covenant House in D.C. You know, and they are a homeless shelter for for youth. Their young people have found jobs in grocery stores. You know, so homeless youth are the ones who are putting themselves on the front line, so that the rest of us can be fed. Yeah, there's a story there about the kinds of service and sacrifice that, you know, people you would think of as disconnected or invisible to society. They're the ones who are stepping forward, in some cases, yes, it's because they have no choice. Those are the jobs that are available, but that's exactly the kind of sacrifice you're talking about that we need to honor once we emerge from
0: this. Yeah. and I. Keep telling people. I think we're going to end up doing things that we never imagined we would do as a result of this. Because I, I I enjoy history, you know, reading about past epidemics and how they have transformed society. One of the ways that they transform society is to elevate the value of manual labor, and workers start to insist on higher levels of compensation and benefits and I don't think we're going to avoid that. I'm not sure that we should avoid it. The essential workforce that we're relying on right now deserves somewhat better than they've been getting prior to the crisis.
1: And I guess the converse of that is, you know, people like you and me, you know, in <laughs> think tanks and and you know, writers and that kind of thing. Maybe we've been overvalued in this economy, and you know, those of us in the chattering classes need to be ready for our own reckoning too.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I had a little exchange with Richard Reeves on Twitter when he was talking about his, you know, his two boys are off delivery services and doing landscaping and he and his wife are at home and really wondering what's their marginal value to society right now (laughs) as intellectuals. And I said to him, your value is to be cheerleader in chief for your essential workers that you've got in your household, you know? supporting them, encouraging them is now your job. I really do think that that's an aspect of social solidarity that you're talking about, which is recognizing the value that we see in everyone's work. We're so dependent upon it, the grocery store clerks and the people who, you know, are janitors in hospitals and you name it. There's just a million jobs out there that we take that work for granted. And I think this is really showing us we can't do that anymore. And we have to honor it. And that means not just saying thank you for your service, but making those thanks tangible, I think.
1: That's right. And then seeing those changes um, ripple through public policy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you wrap up your book with a series of recommendations. And I'd like you to go through those. We've laid out a problem here. And just talk a little bit about what you see as the solutions.
1: Sure. I think yes. Seven steps in the book, and I won't you know, bore everyone by going through through all of them. But what I really try to do is put together an agenda that I hope will cross ideological and, and partisan lines, because I do think, you know, what's happening with young people—we talked about as it, a rural problem. It's an urban problem. It really transcends all boundaries of ideology, and so the solutions also you can transcend boundaries of ideology too. I'll just highlight a couple. But the first step I lay out is pretty easy one of simply counting, you know, who disconnected youth are. You know, unlike places like the United Kingdom, we don't actually even know the scope of the problem. In the OECD and in the UK, you know, the measure is needs, you know, not an employment education and training. So, you know, other governments know what is exactly the scope of the unemployment problem, you know, the disconnection problem, and that way they can target the interventions that are necessary and have a sense of whether it's working or not, we should do the same thing. You The know, Census Bureau should have an equivalent indicator. You know, this is a census year. It could be not that hard, I think, to try to figure out, you know, how many young people are disconnected and have that number available so that our educational systems, our governmental programs, you know, summer programs, whatever, have a sense of what that problem is. So that's, you know, step one, just count the number of young people who are disconnected. We need to have a better sense of what interventions do work and then invest a lot more in the ones that do. We only really invest about $2.5 billion a year federally in programs to reconnect people. And when you look at that in the context of what we spent before the pandemic and certainly what we're spending now, maybe CARES 5.0, I'm sure we'll get to that point, maybe not the next bill, but the one after that should have some money that's targeted specifically for the young people, particularly since young people are so disproportionately affected by the industries that have been really hit the hardest. You know, one in three servers is between the ages of 20 and 24. One in five retail workers is a young person as well. Targeting a little bit more federal support toward programs that will help young people retool for themselves will, I think, be an important step. Third, we don't hear from young people very much at all. They don't actually vote, so we don't hear from them politically. But there's a lot more that policymakers can do to, you know, get the voices of young people more heard in terms of the kinds of public policies that will help them. Particularly when we're talking about educational opportunities and what is relevant. Asking that question, what is relevant to you, and doing a better job of tailoring the education in in up in, in other opportunities and ways that will be useful to young people and keep them connected. And and lastly, I just want to highlight the role of the private sector, which we haven't talked about much before. Early work opportunities, internships, training opportunities, there needs to be a much tighter handshake between, you know, how schools and businesses, community colleges, institutions of higher education are, are working together. And there's a lot more that the private sector can do as far as apprenticeships, internships, that kind of thing to ensure that they are bringing up young people and creating more opportunities to train them, giving them the network and the connections and the skills that they need so that they will be excellent employees in the future. That, I think, is also going to become incredibly important going forward.
0: So let's stay on that point for just a second because I know you've spent some time looking at the Fame Project down in Kentucky and elsewhere—that's about creating a pipeline of workers for key industries. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. The Fame program is—the more I learn about it, the more I think it might be the ideal apprenticeship, work-based learning program out there. And it is wholly private sector run. It doesn't take a single government dollar, which is another indication, I think, of how successful it is that businesses are clamoring to have this kind of program. Pre-pandemic, I don't know how things are going to change going forward. It was a combination of classroom training plus on the job during the week, so two days in school, three days in the factory floor, where there's immediate application of what these young people learn. We could talk for hours about what this program is doing for young people, but it gives them, you know, hands-on experience. There are mentorship opportunities you get that two-year degree, a living wage job, and it's a pathway to, to management for a lot of young people. Some of the young people I spoke to who've been through it are already in management capacities, promoted three, four times over, ahead of people who are ten years their senior. In this program that's been around only since about 2010 in its earliest iteration, I know I'm glossing over a lot of the details of this job, but started on Toyota factory. You know, it's really about addressing that skills gap. That was the initial impetus for this because the factory could not find skilled workers that they needed. So, they created this program and accidentally created an ideal, you know, work-based learning program that's imparting soft skills that employers really want in addition to that technical core that's so important for advanced manufacturing. So, that soft skills component is really what makes this program Really unique, and having turning out employees who can problem solve, who can work in teams, you know, who can talk to another, you know, colleague of theirs in a way that is understood, and they have the broad based skills to really become management personnel down the line, rather than someone who's just, you know, making widgets and working on the line.
0: So I haven't looked at it as closely as you have uh, the same project, which is advanced auto manufacturing is what fame stands for. But I think what it does tying together a few of the themes that we've talked about, which is it's answering that relevance question, right? There's a direct this direct application. You know, it has that sense of I understand why I'm learning this. It has Mm -hmm. a direct connection to an industry and a job and a career pathway. That all makes sense. And then the focus on helping young people develop those soft skills is really getting quite close to the purpose question because work is a social activity. Human beings are wired for social activity. They need it. And it's out of that social exchange that people drive that sense of purpose in their work. So I can't wait to read your paper. I have read part of it. But that I think is an aspect of this that we ought to be exploring how programs like FAME, get at the purpose and meaning question of work as well as the practicality and technical skills aspect. Okay, well, we have been going for almost an hour, and this has been a fascinating discussion. I appreciate, Anne, all of the work that you're doing and all the work that you've done in the past. This is a wonderful book. I strongly recommend it to listeners if they're interested in this nexus, this relationship between youth and work and particularly disconnected youth and work, although I don't, I think it has a broader application that all Americans need to pay attention to, whether they feel like they're a disconnected youth or not. So again, thank you so much for your time and for your work in in this area. I look forward to staying in touch.
1: Thank you, Brent, for this opportunity. Really appreciated it.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation@aei.org at if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.